Well, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I actually just recalled the last time I stood up here and preached. I can remember. You know how I know that? It was the night that the St. Louis Rams played the Titans in the Super Bowl. I'm a Rams fan. So I was eagerly wanting to get through that message to get home and watch the game. That was in 2000, January or early February. So isn't, isn't that interesting? It's been a few years. So some of you were very small then. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I am originally from New Jersey. So I am a little bit louder than you may be used to experiencing. I'm warning you right off the bat. Uh, but that's just my personality. So this morning, the topic we're going to be discussing, believe it or not, is in the book of Revelation. And i got to disappoint you, we're not discussing Bible prophecy. Or everybody, as soon as you say Revelation, they want to talk about the rapture, the mark of the beast, and Armageddon. And uh, sorry folks, we are not going that route. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to jump back to the book of Acts as well. But we're going to look at the letter to the church at Ephesus this morning. The letter to the church at Ephesus. And unfortunately, these seven letters tend to get overlooked unless you're doing a prophecy seminar because it's in the book of Revelation. Very rarely do you see people preaching on the letters in the book of Revelation, which actually can stand alone apart from the prophetic aspect of the book. And when you think about what makes these seven letters very unique, you think about the letter to the Ephesians written by Paul, or James, obviously by James, or First and Second Peter. Those are letters that God had used the personality of the author, okay, his experiences, his temperament, to write the letter through their own personalities and experiences, yet... God interjects through that what he wants to say. For example, you would expect some Peter's writing to be a little different than Paul's writing because of their backgrounds. Same thing would be said for James. Uh, the term, if you, this is your million-dollar term this morning, concursive inscripturation. That's the process that God used when he takes a man, could be like Stephen Miller, and Stephen is going to be used by God to write something. He doesn't do it anymore, Stephen, I'm sorry. But if you were one of the ones back in New Testament times, we would expect Stephen's personality and experiences to come through in God's message. I don't know how he would have done that with you, with physics somehow in there. And uh, anyway, but the letters to the seven churches are direct dictation from Jesus to John. And that's why I think these are so fascinating. I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. So, Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for providing this warm building, comfortable seats, heat. Uh, Lord, we know there are believers around the world that would just love to have these, these amenities, uh, meeting in jungles and huts, and even in persecution in certain parts of the world, and we're still free to meet this way. We just, we just thank you for that, and we know to whom much is given, much is required. So, Father, use us this morning. Uh, as we go through your word and contemplate what you might have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into the actual letter to the Ephesians, one of the things that's fascinating about the seven letters, Jesus uses a tactic that is used in employment 
these days, all right? We call it sandwiching. I, I was a general manager of a company for many years. I've hired and fired lots of people. Um, during that time when you do your employment reviews, it's called sandwiching. And it's when you call the employee in, it's for their yearly review or whatever it might be, and you are going to tell them how they're doing. And typically that's done by starting out with the positives, okay? Then you may get into where the area of improvement needs to be, and then the solution. Jesus does this with each of the churches. Fascinating, out of the seven churches, only two of them have no negative comments set against them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Five of them have some improvements to make. We'll see this morning that Ephesus has some improvements to make. <clears throat> also, he describes himself to each church differently. And the way most scholars interpret this is, is he's describing himself to the church in a way that has impact on what's going on in there. So, for example, if I, I can, by the way, small group, I can use names. If I was calling Matt up and I said, hey, Matt, I'm coming over and I'm just, I'm just full of joy and I got my guitar with me. Matt's thinking we're going to sit around the campfire and play guitar. Now, if I call up and say, Matt, man, my eyes are blazing right now. We got to have a talk. All right. Matt's thinking, what did I do? All right. Jesus in each one of these letters does that. He starts off with a description of himself that seems to have implication to what's going on in the church. Now, we also need to discuss how these churches are viewed by scholars. There's three different views. View number one is absolutely factually true, and that is this, that these were real churches that existed in the first century. Wouldn't have made any sense if they didn't. All right, these are actual seven churches that at the time of the writing of this book, somewhere around 95-ish, uh, they, they figure 95 AD, that were real, that when the letters were dispersed would make sense to the reader in the church. Second view, so, but that one is unequivocally true. Second view, I also believe can be stated as unequivocally true, and that is each situation found in each church okay, this was sovereignly selected by God, would mirror situations you could find in the universal church at any time throughout all of history. So, for example, today, we may run into churches that have an Ephesian flavor, okay? The situation in Ephesus would have meaning to you today. Smyrna would have meaning to some church today, or, or even combinations you know, Smyrna is the church nobody wants to be, all right? That's the church under intense persecution. Then you get into Pergamos and Thyatira. Those are churches nobody would like to be either. Those are in, uh, beginning the process of compromise. And, of course, nobody ever names their church. Like, for example, there's Berean Baptist in Kalamazoo. How many of you have ever seen Laodicean Church of Coloma? You know, nobody wants that one. And, again, the Philadelphian church, very faithful church. But it would seem that that would make absolute sense that at any time throughout history, anywhere in the universal church, you would find situations that you could say, boy, that's us. We need to work on this. Third view. This one, I believe, is false, and it's taught by a lot of the prophecy people. And that's that each church in chronology represents a period of church history. So, for example, they might say that the 
Ephesian church represents the first couple centuries. And then you get to Smyrna when the persecution breaks out under the you know, various emperors. That, that's the next situation. And then on up to the church of the last days is Laodicea. That is too speculative. It's a lot of opinion. And I, I toss that one in the hopper. That one's not one I, I, I use at all. But the fact that there were seven real churches with real issues in that time is true. And that we can glean from them is also true. So this morning, we're going to see what we can glean from Ephesus. By the way, since we're a small group, I can do this this morning. It's almost a little Sunday schoolish. How many of the seven churches are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament? All right, we already know Ephesus. That's a big duh, right? We got a letter to the Ephesus, you know, the Ephesian church. How about the other ones? Is Smyrna mentioned anywhere else? How about Pergamos or Thyatira? mentioned anywhere else. Think about that. Have you ever seen them before? Sardis mentioned anywhere else, Philadelphia or Laodicea. Stephen, come on. I see the cloud over your head. The gears are grinding. All right. Other than Ephesus, you have Laodicea mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 4. I think it's verses 14 through 16. And Paul actually mentions, bring the epistle to the Laodiceans. So there is a piece of writing that we don't know what was in it, but it's mentioned. And there's a young lady, well, we think she was young, mentioned in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. She was a seller of purple, right? Lydia, see, Karen's got, Lydia, a seller from the city of Thyatira. So there's the other two mentions there uh, outside of Ephesus. But the others are not mentioned, but they are real churches. So let's take a look. Real quick, we're going to read into the, to the letter, and then we're going to jump out and look at a history of the Ephesian church. And by the way, I think of all the churches, we have the richest history of this church written in the book of Acts. There's a lot written about this particular church. And there's a reason for that, because this city was like a jewel in the Roman Empire. I mean, it was on the uh, southwestern kind of corner of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It was a port city at that time. Interestingly enough, that is no longer a port city due to silt filling in. It's about five miles now from the water. So you cannot access it like you could in the first century directly by the port. So here's what happens. Let's read Jesus's description of himself. Now, by the way, to start the whole thing in chapter one, Jesus says that there are seven stars, right? And he says the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. That word messenger can be interpreted two ways, either an angelic being or the pastor of the church. The better way to interpret that is the pastor of the church. Wouldn't make any sense to send a letter to an angel, all right? So this is to the messenger or the pastor of the church, and they're in his right hand. And there's some significance to a picture like that. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel, by the way, I'm in the New King James, if you're wondering, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now that's already been interpreted for us in the previous chapter. The lampstands represent the churches, the stars represent the pastors, or the least, the very least, the, the messengers to the church. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm the one who walks among the churches and your leaders are in my hand, to me, that's a little bit comforting. All right. I've got, but it also says this. I know what's going on. 
Okay, I see what's happening. But at this point, if I were to read this, I would not have any, you know, like, hmm, you know, any, 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 any kind of apprehension whatsoever. Because there are other churches where he says, I have the sharp two-edged sword. That's like I'm coming to your house, Matt, and I'm not, I've got my 22 loaded, you know. Anyway, good, good imagery. I, 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 I have your leaders in my hand. I am in the midst of the churches. Now, if this is... If this happens to be an employment, call it there, your, your review, this is pretty good. Listen to how this starts. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. I don't know about you, but if I'm in that employment review, I'm grinning right there. I got a raise coming. All right. Keep going. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Wow. Stop right there. How much? Three percent, eight percent. What am I getting this year? That's a great review. But in a review with Jesus Christ, okay, you don't want to hear the next sentence. Because at that point, you might be going from, to, because the next sentence says that, nevertheless, in spite of all that, all right, in spite of all that, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Wow. There's a, there's a head spinner right there. How does the church that has patience, can't bear people that are evil, Right? persevered for his namesake? How do you do all that and have a sentence like this come out of Jesus' mouth onto the paper? Look, I got one thing against you. You've left, you've left your first love. We're going to examine that in detail toward the end of the message. But that is, a, that is an area of concern. It's a high area of concern because it's just that one line in the midst of a sandwich of good things. So go to the next sentence. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or just listen to this, all right? You got all these good things going. You've left your first love. You need to fix that. Here now is the improvement part of the review, all right? Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, in employment terms, that says you got to get this fixed or you're fired. And that's about what... Now, the lampstand is the church. If you don't get this problem fixed, your church is out. We, by the way, in history, the church went out. That church is not there anymore. A series of earthquakes destroyed it over several centuries, and it does not exist anymore. So Jesus was true to his word. But there's the problem. There's the solution. Watch the sandwich now. He's going to give him a little sandwich now, a little positive to end that. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's closing it out with, all right, I, you got a problem. Here's how you fix it. Oh, by the way, to close this out, you're doing another good thing is you can't stand the deeds of this group called the Nicolaitans because I hate them. Now, you think... Nicolaitans is interesting. There's a lot of ideas on who the Nicolaitans were. We know this much. <clears throat> the word Nicolaitan itself 
happens to have the, has a, a statement to it that believe, it's like this. Victory over the people. Conqueror or of the laity. That's in the, in the word itself. Some scholars, and we don't know this for sure, believe that it was Nicholas in Acts 6-5, who was one of the first deacons that was appointed, became an apostate and started this group. No way to know for sure, but that it's in church tradition, that is one of the explanations. It may have been Nicholas, an early deacon that went apostate, walked and started this group. Don't know. We do know this much. In Greek thinking, it was called Gnosticism, and the way they thought was the body meant nothing. It was the soul that was important. So the Nicolaitans, what is assumed is they believed you can sin like mad in your body because it didn't matter because your soul is saved. In fact, one of the early church fathers says they, they, they acted like goats. Right? They acted like goats. They were pigs. They were, they were, they were just, it was all about the flesh. And um, Jesus didn't like that because here's the thing you got to think about Ephesus. It was an amazing city. If you go online and you want to take a look at ruins, just type in the city of Ephesus and look at these ruins. It's amazing what's still left. The amphitheater that we read about in Acts chapter 19 is still there. It could hold 25,000 people. Huge. There was a marketplace called the Agora, and it was bordered by these columns. And it had three entranceways, and that was a marketplace. And in that marketplace, this was like New York City in its heyday. Being a port city, anything you wanted to buy was in there. I mean, if you went in, probably the smells would have been amazing. Spices and various incenses, clothing and things of different, all over the world. Again, back in that day, things important to them would have been all through this area. It was beautiful. Then toward the middle of this, there was the temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this thing was amazing. All that stands now is the foundation and one pillar. But in its heyday, it had about 127 60-foot-tall marble pillars. Okay? Beautiful cypress roof on it. And this was, I mean, this we talk about immorality. This would have been a center for immorality. In fact, as you entered the city of Ephesus, you went through an archway that had an inscription to, to Augustus Caesar, he is Lord. There was a brothel, the, the town prostitution off to the side as you went into this place. And if you wanted to enter the Agora, the marketplace, this is, there was an incense burner there. You want to talk about, I hope I'm not triggering anybody. You want to talk about vaccine passports, okay? Getting in, you have to have the right, the right credentials. In order to enter the Agora, at least on good terms, you had to take a pinch of incense and throw it into the fire in honor of Caesar. The Christians had a lot of problems with this. So, and get this, the Temple of Diana, if you, again, you can look this up on your own, but look at the, you can see the statues of Artemis or Diana. It's a multi-breasted statue standing like this, and that they sold them there. And in, talk about sanctuary cities, right, which we don't like to talk about. The temple was a sanctuary place. If you were a criminal and you could get in there, they couldn't touch you. And they would have yearly festivals and processions, uh, worshiping the goddess Diana. The place was immensely beautiful, but incredibly corrupt. Now, imagine 
you are a Christian in that area. The church grew like mad. This was the interesting thing. The church grew like mad in that environment, but eventually became corrupt. So let's take a look at some of the history of Ephesus. Turn over to Acts chapter 18. By the way, you are free to raise your hand with a question anytime. Smaller group, I don't mind doing that. Acts chapter 18. Chances are the church at Ephesus was not only founded by Paul, but with the help of a couple. Anybody know the name of the couple? Priscilla and Aquila. You can see that in Acts 18, 18. Comes out, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time, he did not consent. Paul is on this mission. He had taken a vow allowing his hair to grow, and he was, I, gotta, I want to get back for the different celebrations in Jerusalem. I want to do this, this celebration and this uh, vow he had done, but he, this is the first mention where he stops at Ephesus. Now, what's fascinating about Ephesus, it had some pre-evangelism going on. And when I say pre-evangelism, non-Christian evangelism to lay a foundation. Go down to verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, that's northern Africa, Egypt, all right? An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. Now, verse 25 is is kind of interesting here. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. We're going to find out how much he had been instructed in a minute. All right. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though, look at this, though he knew only the baptism of John. Kind of fascinating. What we're going to find out here in a minute is very likely it's possible Apollos was in Jerusalem or in that region at the time of John the Baptist's ministry. What was John the Baptist doing? He was telling Israel that one was coming after him. And the Messiah was coming, and he was baptizing people to be ready for the coming one. What may have happened here is Apollos heard all that and went home, never seeing what happened after that. Here's how we we think that. So he knew John's baptism. Hey, folks, get ready. The Messiah's coming. Hey, folks, get ready. The Messiah's coming. Do you know else how they knew that? Book of Daniel, chapter 9. Most folks don't ever make the connection, but if you go to Daniel, chapter 9, there's the 70 weeks of Daniel. If you take those weeks and add them out, you can, you can figure out the year in which the Messiah would come. Most people don't mention that. So he's still going around for years, probably preaching, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the time is near. The forerunner came, I saw him, right? He was baptizing, telling folks, get ready for the coming one. He's been doing this in Ephesus. Verse 26. So when he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, this has got, imagine this. Imagine have some dude in there. Here's, here, is, here he is. He's preaching the coming Messiah. He's coming. And this couple, I could just see like Aquila nudging Priscilla. 
I don't think he knows what happened. <laughs> he missed it. I, it's amazing this is only contained in a couple of verses, but I hope when we get to heaven someday it's on Blu-ray, all right? I want to see this discussion, how it's carried out, because it must be very entertaining. And it says, when where Quill and Priscilla heard him, verse 26, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Dude, we got some news for you. The Messiah came right after that. He preached these messages. He was raising people from the dead. They put him on a cross and they killed him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Kind of remember that big eclipse that took place, you know, 20 years or so ago? Yeah, that was the day he died. I, again, I get goosebumps. Could you have imagined? This man's been all these years preaching John's baptism and somebody says, dude, it happened. So if you can imagine, all of a sudden, you got a guy that is fervent in spirit, eloquent in speaking, right? And now he's just, seriously speaking, he was holding a a Red Ryder BB gun. They just gave him a Mossberg 12-gauge. I mean, he is armed for bear at this point. And then it says in verse 27, When he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously or intensely refuted the Jews publicly, Showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So I could just imagine Aquila and Priscilla, they're digging out scrolls. And look over here. And look over here. And this, he fulfilled this. And he did this. And now this guy, now he's just, man, I, he's probably just beaming. And God is using him mightily. Using him mightily. Now, after this. So there's the pre-evangelism taking place under his ministry. He now gets it right. Chapter 19 gets even more fascinating. Because Paul is about to run into some of Apollos's, I call them pre-disciples, the ones that had heard his first message. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. It's important that you don't always equate disciples with believers in Jesus Christ. It just means learners. They were learners. They were learning from who at this point? Apollos. And Paul, again, I hope this is on Blu-ray because we're going to get a, we're getting a nugget picture. We're getting a nugget picture here. So some conversation must have come up. And Paul says in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Good question, right? Look at the answer. We have not so much as heard as whether there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul thinks he's got believers here. They've been following Apollos, and when he asks them, Paul's probably discerning something's not quite finished here. Did you get the Holy Spirit when, you're in, when you believe them? What the heck? What's that? <laughs> they don't know. And look at this. Now you get the explanation of what Apollos is preaching, has been preaching. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Paul now is going to kind of do what Aquila and Priscilla just did with Apollos. He's going to tell them, Ah, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Now, I'm sure that's not the whole conversation. right? He's got to give some explanation. Probably the same thing. Oh, man, Apollos, great man, good guy, but he, he, he wasn't there for the finish. By the way, I could say, Aquila and Priscilla set him straight. He'll be back later. But the idea is, here is what happened after that. 
He explains Jesus Christ to them. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Kind of a fascinating scenario here. I'm going to deviate off a little bit to a little apologetics. There are those today that say that in order for you to receive the gift of tongues today, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So in other words, if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I actually had somebody from the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tabernacle tell me this. If you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that's not the formula. So he told me I needed to get baptized in Jesus' name if I wanted to speak in tongues. This is not, that, this is not a formula for that at all. all right? This is not a formula. And the reason why they spoke in tongues... Another big misconception is that tongues was something God gave us so that missionaries could go to other countries and speak their language. It's not what it was for. It was a sign to the Jews that the Holy Spirit had come. And that's why Paul had to lay his hands on them because then it was signifying this is legitimate. An apostle just was here and that's what's taking place. But it, it was, it's not a formula that says that I'm assuming most of you were baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Get the tank open, we'll redo it in Jesus' name, and you'll all be speaking in other languages. That's not how it works. But in any case, now, they're set straight. Things are going good. Now you're seeing the birth of the church at Ephesus. Pre-evangelism, Paul's evangelism, and then it gets even more interesting. Verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. I think that's the longest day you're going to see in a synagogue. In Paul's ministry. Typically, the Jews would not tolerate it that long. But Paul speaks there for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Kind of fascinating here. First of all, we see the, the Christianity referred to as the way now. Nobody knows exactly why. They may be from the fact that Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. But here's where we start seeing that title used concerning the church. But it's, here's what's interesting. Paul is in a synagogue, and they're not going to have it anymore. The school of Tyrannus, and that literally means our tyrant. All right, The school of our tyrant. Now let me ask you a question. If the teacher of the school or the master of the school is named our tyrant, what, what, like I see Stephen, can you imagine? I just signed up for classes today. What's his name? The tyrant. <laughs> All right. So apparently he had a reputation. He had a school. He had a, he had a hall. They do something very interesting over there in the first century. Between 11 a.m. and what we would call 4 p.m., they take a siesta due to the temperatures. So, seriously, the whole society would sit down and basically take a break. It appears that Paul was able to rent the hall during the siesta. So, Paul now has a place to teach for five hours every day. Could you imagine Paul cut loose like that in a town? And in Ephesus, no less. All right, in Ephesus. And it says he did this for two years. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So if you think about some of you that are really Bible students, where do you got to go? Man, I got to get over to the school of Tyrannus. Why? Paul's starting in 10 minutes. I mean, this went on for two years. 
And then we start seeing again some miraculous things. This is all what's building this church. Now, God worked, you ready for this? Unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. I didn't, I didn't think he could have an unusual miracle. You know, miracles are miracles. But these are those ones that the modern-day televangelists like to rip people off with, right? And it says, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons brought from his body. So if Paul wore a headband, because he was working as a tent maker, probably to make some money on the side or whatever, if it got sweaty, hey, take that and take it over to, to Michael Miller. Why? He's sick. We take a whiff of this. Mike's up running again. All right. Or the aprons. And anyway, this is what we call an unusual miracle. It's funny today how we got these clowns. I mean it. They are clowns on television thinking they can pull this off and doing the same thing. Verse 13, probably the most humorous, humorous encounter in the New Testament, in my appearance, humorous. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. In the Greek, you could actually translate this strolling vagabonds all right all right took it upon themselves to call in the name of the lord jesus over those who had evil spirits saying we adjure you by the name of jesus whom paul preaches so they, they see this formula over here boy that works for paul if he says jesus people get healed and things happen hey we want to make a few bucks add the formula to what we're doing <clears throat> I can tell, I'll tell you a story, because we used to do stuff like this. We'd go watch. We would, we would cut school when I lived in New Jersey, and don't do this. There's, no, there's nobody young enough yet to know what I'm talking about. But where I lived in New Jersey, with Valley Road, I lived on an apartment complex. You could walk out to the front of that apartment complex, and every hour on the hour, a bus would take you to the New York Port Authority. From the New York Port Authority, you can get a bus anywhere in the United States. But we would take the bus from there, and we would go to the New York Port Authority, and we would hang out in New York. And you could watch all manner of silly things take place. Right? And I think this would be something if I knew about this. We would have, you, and by the way, New York sells these big pretzels that they make in these, these uh, little carts with actual fires in them. And you'd get a big Coke and a pretzel, and there's these walls you could sit on and watch all the crazy things. Every time I read this passage, I see me and my buddies watching this. All right? This would have been hilarious. Verse 14, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. They thought, hey, let's, let's borrow the, the formula. So they go into a house, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And if you've ever watched the Three Stooges or the Bowery Boys, I want you to think of what's You're outside the house. And the next thing you hear, pots, pans flying, the walls are shaking, the curtains are dropping down. And the next thing you know, these guys come flying out the front door. And this is what it says. The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, I could just see us flipping over the wall backwards laughing. I mean, but th- again, this is all in the mortar of the Ephesian church. This is part of the foundation. These things are happening in this region. Then it goes on. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You almost wonder here, hey, there's, the, there's that guy Paul. Don't mess with him. Why? See what happened to seven sons of Sceva? I mean, the Jesus, he preaches his power. You can't fake it. You can't fake it. But as people are getting saved, 
People are getting saved. Verse 18, And many who had believed came and confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic. Remember, this is an area of pagan worship. A lot of people with spells and crazy things like that brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. I have a note in my Bible, so that's about $365,000 in, in whatever the 1980 money. You know, this is the 1980s version. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Think of a reverse cancer, okay? In the middle of a sick area, wellness is spreading out. People are giving up... Let's face it, we have a lot of compromise today, things people don't give up when they become a Christian. Back then, they were giving up the big stuff. So book burnings aren't real popular today. Back then, it was popular. They were bringing in these garbage books uh, containing spells and things like that and burning them in front of everybody. And people would see that. What's going on here? Talk to him. Go to the school of Tyrannus. Hear the message. It's growing. It's growing. Verse 23, we'll skip ahead a little bit. Again, this is into the foundation. By the way, one of the things you're going to see in this next account, Paul apparently was not a raving lunatic. And the reason that I say that is watch the respect he has gained among the city leaders. He has their respect. There are, there are some Christians that can act pretty foolish. I think Paul not was a straight shooter, but his feet were firm, planted firmly on the ground. He related to the culture and they didn't and watch we'll just read it about that time there arose a great commotion verse 23 about the way for a certain man named demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of diana brought no small profit to the craftsmen he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said men now watch what he brings out first you know that we have our prosperity by this trade what's he go at first money all right so if you want, this would be like the silversmith's union right here. Seriously, this would be the silversmith's guild. He's kind of the head of the union. And he says, men, get together. You know we make a lot of money off of this. People would come into to that area to worship Diana. They sold these shrines. You can still find them in archaeology and in museums. Verse 26, moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, first thing again, the money, all right? Our trade is going to fall into disrepute. Now you get to see the second part. But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So he gets them all worked up in a frenzy. You guys are going to lose money. And they are. If you can imagine, if, if, if it was modern day, you'd have your PowerPoint going. You'd have your graph. See here, back three years ago, prophets were here. Well, here you can see where Paul shows up. Now, look at our prophets are down here. You've got to do something about this. He's killing our prophets. He's going after the great goddess Diana. Let's get the religious part of it worked up. And here you see it, verse 28. And they were heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They get the city worked up. By the way, a lot of drunkenness in this area. Probably pretty easy to get drunks worked up. A lot of drunkenness and carousing going on. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul travel companions. So they, they bring them into this 25,000-seat amphitheater. People are all screaming. 
You know, isn't it so much like today you get these riots started? Most people don't even know why they're there. They've all been drawn in. Hey, something's going on. Let's go make, let's go make trouble. In verse 30, when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Paul says, look, I'll talk to them. And oh, you go out there, they're going to tear you to pieces. It's interesting. The way the amphitheater is set up is now you can't see it because the walls are down. You just have the pillars. But it would have looked like a stage with doors. Paul probably came in and he wanted to go out on the stage. And there's, uh, you go out there, it's going to be trouble. They wouldn't let him out in front. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another for the, this is beautiful, the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his offense to the people. And when they found out he was a Jew with all one, one voice, they cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So isn't it, you shout down the logic. So he wants to talk. They're not letting Paul out because it would get really violent. And soon, he's Jewish, and they just want to let him know their heritage. They're going to scream him down. But I love this. Here's where you see that the people in charge had their feet on the ground. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? There's some thoughts that there may have been a meteorite in there that had come down with bumps all over it, and those bumps were breasts. Don't know for sure, but that is one of the things that we don't know for sure. But we do know the image they may claim that, that, had, that was made may have come from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. Now look at verse 37. For you have brought the, these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Well, they're not temple robbers, but in essence, they really were blaspheming the goddess. But the point being is, Paul was being civil. You, words don't make you do something. The fact that people were converting was their choice. right? Paul wasn't making people not worship Diana. Paul was preaching the gospel. God was changing their hearts, and it was happening. But look at this. <clears throat> Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. You know, I hate to say this, but what an analogy. You look at that, that Rittenhouse trial this summer, caused all that. Look, you want to riot? No, we'll go to court. When you go to court, it settles right down. The, the facts were plain. And I'm not condoning anything he did. I'm just telling you it's an analogy, all right? But here he just says, look, go to court. We'll figure it out. The people knew, Alexander and those guys, they knew what would happen. If you go to court, they'd throw it right out. So they had to go this route. But in verse 40, the clerk makes this clear. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to an account for this disorderly gathering. That's a huge statement. Rome did not like riots in their cities. If word got back to Rome that Ephesus had a riot, Rome wants to know what's going on in your city. That's one of our jewels. That's like our New York City. Why are you having riots in your city? And he says, and I think, again, we read it like this, but it had a bigger impact on Oh, that's right. Yeah, we don't want those guys showing up here. And he quiets it down immediately. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Just like that, it shuts down. It's over. That's all into the, that's all into the mortar of the church at Ephesus. Final, final thoughts on that before we go back to Revelation and finish up. <clears throat> Paul is, leaves Ephesus. 
And he now knows he's going back to Jerusalem, and he knows through the Holy Spirit he'll never see anybody in that area again. He knows what's coming. Verse 13 of chapter 20. Then we went ahead of the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, before so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. When When he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios, and the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. As Paul is taking these puddle jumpers down the coast, he knows if I stop in Ephesus, I ain't getting out of there for a while. Those people love me there. And he decides to go past Ephesus on purpose so he would not get stuck there because he's, he's on a schedule. And it says, and by the way, it says that it, it, I think it's almost a 20-mile difference. So when he gets to the next location from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Sends people back to Ephesus while he waits there. Remember, they don't have cars. So somebody's got to walk like from here to Pawpaw, right, and then walk back. And they come back, and here's his final message. And this will tell you why Ephesus in the book of Revelation is behaving the way it is. Here's what he says. Verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentant towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And with the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Verse 27, now, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, he's talking to the church leaders. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now he's going to turn it up serious. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Now you want to know what he was talking about for three years? And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. They had been totally inoculated, vaccinated, if you want to say, by Paul's message. Watch your flocks. There are going to be people trying to come in from the outside, perverting the doctrine of the Lord. There are going to be men on the inside. Maybe Nicholas is one of them. We don't know. That will rise up and also try to change your doctrine to pervert the teachings of Christ. When we go back to Revelation 2, let's turn there and we'll close. They're doing exactly what they were told. Isn't it amazing? That's the church when it says, you have tested those that say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. These guys were doctrinal Geiger counters. All right. Somebody walked in that church and said, hello, I have a message from the Lord. 
couple of quick questions. You're a fake. Get out of here. Now, the problem with that, because this is a message I speak to myself quite often, because I'm guilty of this a lot, and I have to work on it. You know, being involved in apologetics, I am always quick to diagnose where a person's coming from. Very, very often. And if they're not coming from a good area, I'm quick to probably pull this type of a deal, all right? It's not supposed to be that way, all right? We can diagnose, and there are going to be times you're going to act like an antibody, and you're going to throw that virus out the door. But there are times people like Apollos just need to be corrected, all right? It's love. It's love. And I think what happened here at Ephesus is they lost the love of Christ and the reason why they're doing it. Instead of love, it became duty and obligation. You think about that. If you came home from one day and there was a big bouquet of roses sitting there, and you, oh, Stephen, I love these roses. And Stephen, and I can imagine Mr. Analytical, well, I had been binge-watching some uh, Hallmark Channel movies, and I had noticed that women seem to appreciate roses, so I thought I would fulfill that obligation and get you some roses. Did it work? Is that what you want to hear? All right. All right. There's a difference between obligation and duty and love. And what Christ is saying to this church, you have flipped from love. You're still doing the right things, but for the wrong reason. And it's so serious that in spite of your doctrinal purity, love is so important that I'll take your church out of the way. And we find out later that the church completely apostatized much later on and a few centuries later. So that's your challenge today. Analyze where you're at. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it for the love of Christ or is it, I do this because I do it every Sunday. I come here, I have an obligation. I think that's the challenge we have from Jesus. So let's close in a word of prayer. Do we have a closing song, Mike? Okay. Father, we thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you that you have put together a book that is just not a boring group of rules. Lord, we see stories, histories in real time uh, that we can relate to, that speak to us, that give us examples on how we should act. And Lord, we do need to consider why we do what we do. Is it because we love you and want to serve you out of love and that makes us serve others? Or are we doing it out of duty and obligation? Just we've always done it. So Father, help us to search our hearts. And as you told Ephesus, repent and do those first things that we may please you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thank you.